According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, as always, so join me in the Word of God by turning to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. New Testament begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. In our Life of Christ series, we are going through the chronology, the Life of Christ on a chronological basis, which means we're bouncing around back and forth between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and getting the complete story from uh, beginning to end. And uh, this is now episode 14 in the uh, last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus. So we are... Uh, approaching the crucifixion. This is the last and final ministry prior to the Passion Week itself. And uh, as we uh, work our way through it, we are observing a lot of hostility, a lot of increasing hostility, as uh, which will ultimately, of course, culminate in uh, his death on the cross. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 is titled, Repent or Perish. Sounds kind of drastic, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, that's what it is. And uh, truly, we can adopt such language if if you are led, if in your own evangelism or your own confrontation with those um, without the truth. uh, You know, I don't recommend it every single time, but you may be led uh, on an occasion with a person that uh, very much indeed the the danger of perishing the 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 fear of hell is uh, such that uh, at this moment in their insecure walk it it wakes them up and uh, that kind of blunt language perhaps is not used as much anymore and maybe we need more of it maybe maybe that uh, fear of hell and death is uh, something that needs to be stressed once again well Let's look at it and then we'll open in prayer. Verse 1 says, On the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that's where the title for the paragraph comes in, Repent or Perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he has the warning twice, two separate stories, one that they brought to his attention and the one that he brings to their attention. And using the uh, uh, political scandals, using current events, using... Uh, the tragedy of the day, as it were, he uses those opportunities to teach with respect to the real issues involved, that is, eternal life versus eternal death. And so that's what we're going to take our time today to uh, to deal with. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Very important time. This gives every believer the opportunity, before we even get started, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, this gives you the opportunity to confess, to be restored to fellowship, to ask the Father humbly to instruct you on this day. Shall we pray? Oh.
Most gracious Heavenly Father, this is indeed our privilege and blessing on this day. We thank you for the truth of your word and and really the, the grace provision that allows us to assemble, Father, the freedom that our nation has enjoyed for all of these years, Father, and continues by your grace that allows us to meet in a public building with a sign out front. We're not in fear of the government shutting us down or uh, those hostile to us coming in and putting us to death for our faith. Father, these are uh, freedoms that we do not want to take for granted, but I think oftentimes we do. So remind us what a grace provision it is. Humble us under the authority of your word. Teach us today so that we will be more Christ-like in uh, the conduct of our lives to the glory of our Savior. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, we have a total of four points of study that we want to glean out of this uh, paragraph and we covered the first one of them last week so i'll simply put the notes back up on the screen and those of you that were here this will be a quick review if you weren't here this will uh, get you up to speed and get you caught up to where we need to move today but we start off in chapter 13 with on the same occasion on the same occasion so it's important that we stop and identify what occasion that is so we don't lose our context for when this message was given and really it's the context for chapter 12 where a total of 10 emphases were being stressed by our savior in an amazing decalogue of content i mean we often think of the 10 commandments right as the decalogue of the old testament well here's another decalogue and this one's coming from christ himself in his teaching on this occasion and I find it interesting that in the aftermath of ten tremendous messages, uh, the reaction on these guys, they're, they don't have questions for them. They don't want to follow up. They don't, they're not humble by the authority of the word or anything. They just want to use this occasion to interject their own agenda to be able to bring a, um, a political atrocity to his attention. So on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, as we studied last week and we went into some of the detail on Pontius Pilate, not, not a whole lot. There's a lot more we could do. Uh, Pilate was a bad guy, all right? He was, uh, he was a pagan. He was a Roman, an unbeliever, died and went to hell. In fact, if the, if the Christian legends are true, he died a horrible death. But the, um, despite the, the terrible things that he had done, that's missing the point. It's missing the point for what Jesus' purpose was, for what his message was, for what he was teaching, for what he was warning. And these certain ones, they're not named here, but there were some present. Certain ones present. And um, they wanted to bring this atrocity to Jesus' attention. And uh, we said a little bit about that. We'll have some more to say about that today. But why is it? It's almost like uh, Mary, his mother, and they ran out of wine at that wedding. All right, the very first miracle he ever did. And she brings uh, not a political atrocity to his attention. Shall we call it a, uh, <laughs> you know, a hospitality disaster or some kind of thing, right? I mean, they're out of wine. Oh, my goodness. That is, I mean, that's a crisis in in some respects uh, but the points there as well would lead jesus to a great big so what kind of statement what is that to me and to you was his phrase and in many respects it again is a good reminder 
what are we here for? What are we doing? What are our priorities? What is it that is that I am expected to do in my obedience to Jesus Christ? And when we can keep things in that focus, it helps us to maintain a sense of uh, objectivity and perspective when there are uh, seemingly no shortage of people that want us to get all into crusades, into activism, into political involvement and all kinds of other things. When... When we look at it biblically, we're not called to engage in such things. All right. And that's what I hope we can uh, evaluate here in the process of this study. So they bring this to his attention. Uh, this was evidently opportune for them. Uh, this is not only an occasion, as the English word there would represent, but it is an opportune time, as the Greek text here would represent, and we took the time um, uh, to look at Luke 4:13 and John 7:36. Other passages where this Greek expression, an opportune time, comes into focus. There's really two words for time: uh, chronos, where we get chronology, and uh, and that's you know a sequence of time, recorded time, uh, specific delineations of time. But then there's kairos, and kairos. Uh, such as we have here, we have a kairos, which is an opportune, the exact perfect time, the precise moment, see. And for them, this was a good occasion to where they can jump right in there and, and try to turn things to a political focus. And uh, there's a whole study to timing. In fact, it's a study I hope to uh, pursue more thoroughly because uh, I've found myself, uh, my timing tends to be awful. <laughs> you know, I am constantly, and just as a matter of personality flaw or what have you, I'm constantly saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I, I've been, I pray over that. I, I ask the Father to somehow work. But, and I'm obviously the only one in this room that's ever had an occasion like that. But the... Uh, the opportune time. There is a time. Ecclesiastes tells us there is a time. And uh, it either is or isn't. Remarkably, though, times can be different between the saved and the lost, as Jesus pointed out there in John 7. For his brothers who were unbelievers, uh, their time, he tells them, their time is always opportune. And um, quite a impacting message, I think, there in John chapter 7. We uh, did a little bit of the work under these other points, and I won't review those with Pontius Pilate. We even took the time to read through some uh, Josephus to get some of the historical background on Pilate. But I think the point being made here, they're bringing a massacre to his attention, not just any massacre, but a massacre of Galileans, as if somehow that was going to make the difference. Uh, because remember, to the powers that be, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ruling uh, elite in Jerusalem, not unlike the ruling elite of our country, you know, the powers that be in uh, Washington, D.C., for example, uh, there is a certain pride that looks down on everybody else that's not them, as it were. And constantly throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, this Galilean fisherman was the object of their scorn, of their derision. He, uh, he did not go to any of their pharisaical schools. He obviously was not qualified to be a rabbi. And so here they are bringing up an atrocity that focuses on the Galileans involved. And uh, interestingly enough, he's not going to take their bait. He is not going to respond. He's not going to crusade. He's not going to get all um, worked up over a terrible thing that had been done to his fellow Galileans. 
All right. And I think that's uh, an important observation for us to consider. Because, believe me, there are no shortage of sad, tragic stories in our culture, in our world, in our community. Uh, Every day, every week, it seems, there's another story in the news and you think, oh my goodness, this world that we live in. All right? Let's not allow the tragedy of the day to be a distraction from our focus in our work assignment to glorify Jesus Christ. Remember, God the Father's plan is a grace eternal plan of the ages. And His eternal plan doesn't uh, get distracted. It doesn't get sidetracked. And it doesn't get um, tossed to and fro. That eternal plan, He's never lost His focus. And uh, these are things we want to learn. Now, He uses the occasion. This is point two. Jesus' reply exposed the accuser's true feelings Regarding the Galileans, notice his reply. Do you suppose? (laughs) A little bit rhetorical there, of course. And yet, he's right on target with respect to their attitude that that they were greater sinners. Or that when when bad things happen, they had it coming. Alright? Because, you know, bad things don't happen to good people. If you're good and devout and religious and follow all the pharisaical rules and all these other things, well, then obviously you're the cream of the crop. You're uh, head and shoulders above these Galileans. So Jesus' reply exposed the accuser's true feelings regarding the Galileans. I think it's interesting. And, of course, they are reporting to him in verse 1. Reporting to him. (laughs) Right? Bringing to his attention. As it were, and he's a, here he is a spirit-filled Old Testament prophet uh, who knows far more than they would ever hope to know about things that the fathers revealed to him. And don't don't make the mistake to think that he's tapping into omniscience here. That's not the case. But he is under prophetic inspiration, able to unveil and unmask their uh, attitude. Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? And uh, I just love the way he turned the question around. And he turned it back to a heart issue that was exposing, I think, the, the, the pride, the pride of their soul, the pride that was hindering their own humility to accept the gospel message itself. And then he answers the question, I tell you, no. They weren't any worse sinners than any other Galileans. They weren't worse sinners than you, self-righteous people (laughs) okay it's an important message these accusers considered that the massacred galileans deserve their their suffering by virtue of their great sinfulness they in other words they had it coming this actually is the flawed logic that job's accusers employed you look back to job chapter 4 verses 7 through 9 i mean of course, you've got 30 chapters of dialogue between Job and his accusers, and there's a large narrative that's at work there. But this uh, flawed logic, sadly, still exists today. I imagine it will always exist so long as human viewpoints in the world. <laughs> Until such time as the new heavens and new earth come in and, and human viewpoint is done away with, where we're like-minded with Christ on certain things, uh, or on all things, that this attitude is still going to be there. 
Let's go back to Job and, and uh, remind ourselves about this. Remember, Job did not deserve what happened to him. Job was being attacked. Old Testament book of Job. Fairly easy to find. It's 40 chapters long and right there in front of Psalms. So how can you miss it? But we, we've gone through this story before. And I think even if you're not familiar with a chapter by chapter arguments that are that are brought back and forth between Job and his three accusers. The uh, the first couple of chapters hopefully are familiar to everybody and then the conclusion at chapter 40 should be familiar to everybody. But Job is fearing the Lord, doing everything right. Um, the Pharisees and other legalists in, in Christ's day would couldn't hold a candle to Job in terms of his faith and his walk and his godliness and his fear of the Lord. And uh, and yet, Satan afflicts him. And uh, God gives him permission. Satan, of course, is designing it for Job's downfall. Uh, God is permitting it for Job's testing. Also, as a uh, component of angelic conflict resolution, where he allows the, un, uh, the righteous to suffer, so as to manifest grace and mercy. Anyway, I think the key that you can glean out of chapter 4 comes from Eliphaz the Temanite. And it really um, serves to highlight the, the flawed logic on this. And without reading all of chapter 4, you just notice, um, I think there's good uh, introduction to Job himself in verses 1 through 6, where Eliphaz the Temanite answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, you have strengthened weak hands. In other words, looking back over Job's life and his career, he was um, a tremendous speaker and a tremendous encourager. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. Now it, what's it? Well, you'll see here in a moment, the, the calamity, the affliction. It has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not the fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Now let's just take that issue right there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes. And godly fear, godly reverence, that is, that is true for believers in the church under New Testament teaching. That is true for Israel in the Old Testament under law, according to Old Testament teaching. And it was true even prior to the uh, law and the calling of the nation of Israel. It was true for the Gentiles under prophetic Gentile revelation. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But look what he adds on the second side of that, integrity. And... Uh, the fear of God combined with integrity. When you start to add to what God is doing, and you start to add to that based on what you're doing, you just made the first step towards error, the first step towards problems. Your confidence has to be the fear of the Lord. Keep the fear of the Lord. Never abandon the fear of the Lord. But when you make your own behavior, your own conduct, your own integrity, uh, as the basis for hope, that's a problem. All right. Now you can 
affirm your integrity. David did. Christ did. Uh, there's nothing wrong with affirming your integrity. But the affirmation of your integrity is not the basis for your hope. The basis for your hope is the fear of the Lord. So you start to see the first step there where Eliphaz is off track, and then it explodes in verses 7 and following. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? And here is the flawed logic, that the righteous don't ever suffer. See, that if someone perishes or someone is destroyed, well then, they had it coming. They were guilty. They were deserving of God's wrath. See, and what I think makes this even more uh, appropriate is the fact that this is coming in the first uh, handful, the first dozen generations after the flood, where even uh, the, the patriarchs themselves, Shem is still alive. And the, the first 12 generations uh, from Shem to, to Abraham, if you track it down there, Shem is still alive. I expect Ham and Japheth are still alive. I expect that uh, their sons, the first uh, post-flood, uh, those born on the earth after the flood, they're still alive. Because they were living centuries at that time. And um, the idea here, I mean, God's wrath, if you're the, in the first few generations after the flood, you're not going to forget God's wrath, are you? <laughs> Because you're the first few generations after the flood. You're, you're just now repopulating this land. And, uh, and different things that happen here. All right. So whoever perished being innocent. And I think sometimes we consider that uh, uh, prior to the flood that Noah and his family, of course, they were the family that was preserved. Uh, it says all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we start to ask... Um, does that mean that they were the only believers on the planet? Or were they the only believers positive to God's word on the planet? Or were they the only believers that God delivered? And that there were believers who actually perished in the flood, like the unbelievers who perished on the flood. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the bulk of humanity was unbelievers at that point. But it is interesting. God, God allowed Methuselah to die. Methuselah's death was the sign of the flood, and yet uh, we're not going to know until we get there how many believers perished in the flood. Carnal believers. All right. In any event, this is the flawed logic. Look what else. Verse 8. According to what I have seen... <laughs> well, aren't you just the smartest guy on the block, right? According to what I have seen... Here's step number two. When you start inserting your own human observations into the situation. No, it should be according to what God has revealed, according to his word. You know, opinions, who cares? Those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. That's generally true, of course. You reap what you sow. That's Galatians. We, we accept that as generally true. But it does. You, it still fails to understand elements such as undeserved suffering. What happens beyond what you've earned or deserved? What happens beyond what's in your control versus out of your control? See? And please, if you're going to limit your spiritual walk to a legalistic... Uh, do good things, have good things happen to you, do bad things, have bad things happen to you. I mean, if you, do you really want to function based on what you've earned or deserved? No. What is that? That is the opposite of grace. 
Grace ignores what you've earned or deserved. Because what you've earned is a lake of fire. What you deserve is God's eternal wrath. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, if we operate on an earned or deserved basis, no one would be saved. But the fact is that Christ is the one that's earned it all, deserves everything. And when you place your faith in Christ, when you understand that He died on the cross as payment for your sin, did you deserve that? Did you earn that? No. It's a free gift, freely offered. And you place your confidence in what what Christ accomplished on that cross. So praise God, it's not what we've earned or deserved. So according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it, by the breath of God they perish, by the blast of his anger they come to an end. So if they died, it's because God killed them. And it's because they did something wrong, because God, they're under God's discipline. All right, well, that may be, but we don't know that. It may be undeserved suffering. See, it fails to comprehend undeserved suffering. That's point B. One of the best doctrines I ever learned in childhood was deserve and undeserved suffering, the difference between the two. This view fails to comprehend undeserved suffering. I think it also fails to understand a whole lot of other things, like the nature of the fallen world. We live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. Earthquakes happen. Floods happen. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Because you live in a world of sin. And I encounter it. You probably encounter it. People I talk to, uh, and they're, they're jaded. They're, they're, um, they, they, they see things that happen. And they well, how can a loving God let this happen? And goodness. I had a nickel every time I heard that. <laughs> right? You too, right? I'd pay, I'd pay be paying cash for our new building next year, I tell you. The... Um, so if you fail to understand undeserved suffering, you're going to have a flawed approach to life. If you fail to understand the fallen cosmos, you're going to have a, a flawed approach to life. Hebrews 2.18, to me, I like pointing to passages where you can just put your finger there and say, okay, we're not, we're not even debating anymore. This, is, this ends the argument. Because if you, have a, if you take issue with it, then you have an issue with the Scripture, and I can't debate you anyway. <laughs> but... Undeserved suffering, and what better example do we have than uh, than Jesus Christ? Hebrews two eighteen says, "For since he himself was tempted, in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted." All right, and there's a there's a, a much larger context here. We've got a wonderful high priest, and he knows what we're dealing with. He knows what we're struggling with. He understands because he lived our life. But just notice, all these passages that speak of his suffering, he suffered in Hebrews 2.18. In Hebrews 5, he suffered. And actually, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered in Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So let me ask you this. What did he do to deserve that? What secret sins did Jesus have? Okay, if you're going to stay stand there and say that every time something bad happens, they had it coming. Well, how did Jesus have it coming then? What did he do? He didn't do anything. He was sinless. 
without sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. So, I mean, maybe the example of Job doesn't work. I mean, I think we can prove that Job didn't deserve what he got. He wasn't sinless, but he didn't deserve what he got. Well, Jesus didn't deserve what he got either, and I know that he was sinless. See, there has to be something in addition to divine discipline out there for an explanation of bad things that happen. When bad things happen to good people, what's going on? Well, here we find a big clue in that he learned. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Hardships in life are teaching opportunities. And God the Father wants adult sons. He wants mature sons. He doesn't want a bunch of babies. <laughs> Can you imagine? I love babies. Babies are cute. we got more babies on the way. In fact, Celia ought to have hers here any day now, right? But you know something? Babies grow up. And they should. They need to. Absolutely they need to. My baby's having a birthday today. Growing up, and that's just good. Because I can have a lot more fellowship with a 17-year-old than you can have with a newborn. Think about it. All right? And then an adult son, say. And that's what the father wants, adult sons, bringing many sons to glory. It's not the plan of God to get a whole bunch of people saved and then populate heaven with a, uh, a resurrected nursery of a bunch of babes. Goodness. Imagine such a thing. First Peter chapter 2. And you know, Peter, Peter learned a lot about suffering. Uh, I think he learned a lot about deserved suffering. Consequences of his own stupidity. But he also learned about undeserved suffering. And Jesus even warned him. Satan demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And you can take that you as a general you, y'all, disciples, apostles, church-age saints. But don't forget the fact that it was spoken initially, originally, singly to Peter. To sift you, Peter, like wheat. And uh, Peter would uh, become the Job of his day with direct satanic attention after Jesus' death, of course. So Peter learned a lot about suffering, deserved and undeserved. And uh, he even points out the fact that you want to make sure when you are suffering that it is undeserved. First Peter 2.20 says, What credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? So if you had it coming because of your own reversion, your own carnality, your own hardness of heart, then, uh, okay, sure, endure it, learn from it, repent, get back in fellowship, return back to the light. Don't uh, feel like you're laying up treasures in heaven because you're taking your lumps that you, uh, that you brought upon yourself. But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, in other words, if it's undeserved suffering instead of deserved suffering, um, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. That puts you under the grace category for uh, provision in time and reward in eternity. You're laying up treasures in heaven. All right. So does that make sense? You got the difference on that? When you endure the undeserved suffering, you're an object of grace and you're laying up treasures in heaven. You're not laying up treasures in heaven when you're enduring your discipline, divine discipline. See, <laughs> if that's the case, you just go maximum reversion, sin unto death and stack up everything. In the 
That's not a way to lay up treasure in heaven. All right. In fact, that's a way to consume treasure in heaven. Well, so there's the flaw. Also, this view succumbs to the cosmos wisdom of relative righteousness. This view succumbs to the cosmos wisdom of relative righteousness. Cosmos wisdom, the world's wisdom. Cosmos is the word for world. K-O-S-M-O-S, if you transliterate it. Succumbing to the cosmos wisdom. They thought that the, the Galileans that Herod massacred were worse sinners than any other Galileans. And of course, any other Galileans are obviously worse than Judeans. Okay? That there is a pecking order, that there are better uh, servants of Yahweh in their Old Testament way of thinking. Anytime you approach relative righteousness as a standard, you're, you've plunged into cosmos wisdom. You've plunged into cosmos wisdom. Because righteousness in God's program is never relative. It's absolute. God is absolutely righteous. Man, fallen man without Christ, is absolutely unrighteous. And it's not a sense of, well, well, I'm better than the next guy. No. You're no better, no worse. My old pastor used to be pretty blunt about the way he'd express that. You're all no good. You're all no... And there was an adjective in there. Okay. On the West Coast, you could be a little blunt. You probably got it from the colonel, though, I bet you. Did he used to say the same thing? Yeah. We're no good. In fact, all of our righteousness is as a filthy rag. Okay. Relative righteousness. If, you, if you're living your Christian walk on a scale whereby you think, hey, I'm doing better than this guy. <laughs> Problems, okay? Because it's only pride that looks at somebody else you think you're doing better than and convinces yourself that you're okay. Why does pride never look at somebody that's doing better than you <laughs> and say, oh, I'm not doing very well? Okay? No, cosmos wisdom of relative righteousness. The cosmos is the fallen world system. Think cosmos uh, in terms of arrangement. The English word cosmetics, when you arrange your face, comes from this root. Cosmos, uh, cosmeo, to arrange, to order. Okay, And the order, the arrangement of this world is not God's arrangement. This is God's world. This is my Father's world. He created it. He established it. He uh, bequeathed it upon Adam, but Adam relinquished it in his fall. And this world has been under Satan's arrangement ever since. Okay? Good news is, of course, that it's perishing. This world will pass away and along with it, it's lost. So uh, there you have it. <laughs> Boggles my mind. Here they are all wor worried about global warming. I'm looking forward to it. Colossians chapter 2. As you know, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. They will be destroyed. The elements themselves will be consumed with great heat. 
the uh, atomic structure of our physical universe is uh, going to be consumed in the fire of God's judgment. The Colossians 2, I turn to uh, fairly often actually. Reminds me of what uh, the cosmos wisdom is all about. Reminds me of what systems of relative righteousness are all about. Standards of legalism and how worthless they are. And yet millions of people are following these standards. Colossians 2.20 says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the cosmos, and this is assumed to be true because he's writing to believers at Colossae, born-again believers. So consider that you are in Christ. And what was it he died to? What is it he lives for? What are we supposed to be living for? Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. See, as if you were living in the world. Well, where else do you live? Your citizenship is in heaven. Your attention is in heaven. You might reside here, but you don't live here. This world is not your home. You're an alien, you're a pilgrim, you're a stranger. It's not where you live. You don't belong here. Stop to consider that. See, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And think about all these religions and all these churches with their legalistic rules about don't eat this, don't drink that, don't smoke this, don't dance, you know, all these rules. And what's the value in them? What are they truly promoting? Which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. God never gave it. Now, now if God gives a command, okay. God gives a command, I've got to obey it. <laughs> Show me in the Bible. Show me the verse. Demonstrate for me the church age application. And I'm accountable. I've got to live it. Alright? But the uh, these other rules about this and that and these... See, the thing is, you know what? I'm convinced people love, carnal believers love legalism. Because legalism feeds the ego. And as long as you can play the game better than the next guy, you can feel pretty good about yourself. And I don't care if it's Catholic legalism or Baptist legalism or name your flavor of legalism, Jewish, Judaic legalism, whatever it is. Artificial systems of do's and don'ts that make people feel better about themselves for being a good person. They miss the mark. And this passage says so. Notice, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. They sure seem to be good. In self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. Think about those that are so rigid in their, uh, I mean, you know, the extremities of it. Uh, uh, I think about Mormonism. Very moral, very ethical, very patriotic, very, I mean, they're good citizens. They're the greatest neighbors you'll ever have. They'll, they'll cut your grass. They'll, they'll, I mean, they'll do all kinds of good things for you. You know how enslaved they are? Uh, I mean, not just alcohol, but caffeine and, and everything else. And just the uh, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body. And, and sadly, 
Without Christ, without eternal life. Notice, they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. None of this legalistic religion is worth two hoots against the carnal nature of humanity. In fact, it feeds the carnal nature of humanity. No value against carnal, fleshly indulgence. Over to Matthew 7. Message on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Cosmos wisdom says how that, that these good people, how God, God, they're so good. God wouldn't send them to hell. Hell is going to be full of all kinds of good people, humanly good people. Not about human goodness. I mean, look at these guys. They did all kinds of stuff. They were very religious. Many will say to me on that day, not just a few, not just one or two here or there, many, many, let's face it, wholesale religiosity is uh, popular. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? Notice how charismatic they are. <laughs> you ever wonder about that? The pursuit of sensationalism, the pursuit of the of the wonders and the signs, and oh, look at all the great, powerful things we're doing for God. You know, Paul, Saul of Tarsus was convinced he was serving Yahweh by putting those heretics to death. And he would have been in this crowd saying, Lord, Lord, look at me. I traveled all the way to Damascus. I was putting heretics to death. I love you. See, he didn't even know who he was serving. Light blinds him and he says, Lord, who are you? Jesus Christ, whom you're persecuting. See? So they will declare, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What good was their religion? What good was their zeal? Their relative righteousness was worthless. Paul himself said he was advancing beyond many of his contemporaries. As far as the uh, righteousness found in the law, he was blameless. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. Luke 18. And there's more. I mean, I just picked out four or five of my favorites here because these are passages that are easy to remember and I think they fix the point in your mind. This one makes me laugh. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, of course, convinced that he was better. And the uh, tax collector who knew that he wasn't, knew that he was worthless, but understood grace. So the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> you know? Thanks be to God that I'm so great. You know? Happy for me. That uh, not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I mean, here he is praying with a guy pointing to him. Man, isn't that great? Hope that didn't happen. Ladies were praying over here last hour and trust that didn't happen. You know, first lady prays, the second lady says, you know.
Anyway, you see why this makes me laugh? But it ought to make us cry. Because how many believers are in this mindset? And let me tell you something else, too. You and me. Doctrinal believers can develop a pride, which is nothing more than this. It's a legalistic pride, as if somehow doctrinal Bible churches are better than those Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalians, and, you know. Let me tell you something. <laughs> now, I wouldn't trade this church for any church in, in the world. And I wouldn't, change, I wouldn't trade this form of teaching. But let's not get prideful about it. It's only by God's grace that we're under such teaching, that we have such teaching available. And we're not better. We're not better. In fact, we're more accountable. He holds us to a higher account because we've been given more uh, clear teaching. And I can, uh, I'm out here in a Methodist church every Monday night. That's the church that sponsors my uh, son's Boy Scout troop. And there's a lot of real good people out there, and I'm sure some of them are saved. I'm pretty confident that some of them aren't. All right. And I know that they've got not a whole lot of teaching. But I know, I can, I can point three or four of them out to you that whatever teaching they have, they're living it. They are living the teaching they have. And um, I can point to a whole lot of other people. <laughs> they got all this teaching and they're not using it. And they're not using it. Alright, so this whole thing of Relative righteousness. Let's not get prideful or think that we've got, uh, you know, all this great teaching or that somehow, uh, you know, the judgment seat of Christ is going to have, um, of course, Christ and then three or four of the apostles that made it to pillar status. And then uh, probably, you know, John Calvin will be up there somewhere. And then um, 20th century American doctrinal Christians. Will be right up there in the in the uh, hierarchy of maximum rewardability. Uh, I think we've had it so easy in this country. Twentieth century American Christianity is going to be pretty low in the overall scheme of things in glory. All right, well that's Luke eighteen. I love uh, you know look what he's doing. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. If that's your attitude of look at me and what I'm doing, you miss the point. The tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. That needs to be our attitude. What have we done? Nothing. What are we? Sinners saved by grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So Paul says, by the grace of God, I do what I do. And if he wants to stop it tomorrow, he can stop it tomorrow. See. Of all the things that happened last month, Lord, when he took my voice for 12 days, I thought, oh my goodness. What if he doesn't give it back? <laughs> right? What if I can't ever pastor again? And, uh, you know, what's the point in living if you can't pastor? Right? You can't use your gift? Why are you still here? He doesn't have to give it back. He didn't have to give it the first time. It's grace. 
Let's remember that. Finally, Galatians 1.14. And uh, see, the Galatians were the, it's the best book of the Bible you can turn to if you have a struggle with legalism. Just read Galatians uh, three times a day for 30 days. All right. That's my official prescription. Three times a day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Read the book of Galatians. And uh, do that for 30 days. Because they got saved by grace through faith, and then they started returning back to legalism for their spiritual walk. Anyway, Paul was able to use his biography to, to reach them and to communicate. And he points out, uh, you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But none of it was had any value. But when God, who sent me apart even from my mother's womb was and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, See, that's what happens. God reveals His Son in you, to you, through you, and in you. What a blessing. So, let's not succumb to cosmos wisdom and relative righteousness. Let's not... See, this gets people in trouble. This gets, um, you know, Pat Robertson in trouble. A hurricane strikes New Orleans. and uh, Well, you know, that's because they were so godless. It's because they were supporting... Uh, you know, there was a there was a, a homosexual uh, gathering there that week before, so on and so forth. And so they they had it coming kind of a thing. And what are we doing? You know, we live in a fallen world. Hurricanes happen. Anyway, did they get it because they were worse sinners? <laughs> All right. Point three, Jesus' rebuke was immediate and harsh. Immediate and harsh. He answers his question. He says, no, unless you repent, you also will perish. These accusers were in urgent need of repentance. Repentance. I mentioned the hellfire and the, that kind of preaching has gone away and days gone by. What about the, even the term repentance? When does that ever get featured. They were in need of repentance. And repentance is not uh, a moralistic turning over a new leaf, uh, promising God you're going to become a better person or uh, a uh, New Year's resolution of uh, moral self-reform through human effort. Okay? There's whole wings of libraries and whole sections of bookstores that are entirely given over to self-help. <laughs> Doesn't that boggle the mind? You want to just put a match to all of it and say, you know what, there's no such thing as self-help. You're helpless, hopeless. Christ died for your sins. His rebuke was immediate and harsh. These accusers were in urgent need of repentance. Repentance is a change of thinking. A change of thinking that comes about because the Holy Spirit is convicting. The Father is drawing. Um, there is a growing uh, dissatisfaction in the life of an unbeliever with the things of this world. And a more and more of a, of a recognition that we don't measure up. 
We can't hack it. We need God. And that change of thinking takes place. Metanoeo is the Greek verb for, for repentance. And, and noeo is a thinking word. Meta, you're changing your thinking. You know, and the uh, even with respect to a believer who should know better. In fact, if you count all of the uses of repentance in the Bible... More of them are directed towards believers than unbelievers. And uh, that's another pride issue. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> the preacher does start preaching repentance, then uh, you can say, yeah, you know, preach it. Because you, you think you're not talking to you. He's talking to those sinners, those bad people, those unbelievers. More often than not, the New Testament is talking to believers and the need to change their thinking, adjust their thinking. In any event, repentance was a message. Uh, it was a message uh, that the herald used, John the Baptist used it, Jesus used it. Uh, Israel at this point in their stewardship is on the verge of their kingdom, the kingdom that's been promised since David. God can't lie to David. This kingdom is on the way. It's still on the way, even though it's been delayed. The kingdom will be realized on this earth. And yet, if the attitude is not prepared for it, how can the kingdom come? That's the whole point. And that's why they're going to go through the discipline of the tribulation to adjust the thinking. So Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they've had three years now, three years of his public ministry. The baptizer's been, been warning that the king is on his way. The king himself is in their presence now, spirit filled and dwelled. The opportunity to adjust their thinking so Matthew 3, 2, the message of John the Baptist, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. Now, it's interesting because we saw a very key hinge where he stopped preaching the kingdom at hand. Remember that in the Galilean ministry? He started uh, preparing his disciples for the cross. And uh, he started telling them about, uh, about conflict and about the Son of Man must be uh, uh, delivered into the hands of men. And, and Peter, uh, of course, said, uh, over my dead body, you know, <laughs> far be it from thee, Lord, this should never happen to you. And, and Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. Uh, but so Jesus is no longer, at this stage of our chronology, he is no longer preaching the imminency of the kingdom. But what is he still preaching? This need to repent. This need to adjust, to change thinking. I find that interesting. Mark 1.15, Luke 10. Look at this change here in Luke. Starting in Luke, uh, since we're in Luke at the moment. Back up, uh, you know, chapter 13 is not really isolated. It's, it's in a, uh, a larger context. And you can see it in chapter 10, chapter 11. Uh, of course, 13 is where we are, but it comes up again in chapter 15 and chapter 16. There is a long stretch here of these repentance messages. In Luke 10:13, it's, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. There's a larger context to that that addresses these other cities here as well. We'll be dealing with this in our ministry workshop, by the way. 
We look at that need for repentance. And look what happens when God sends a prophet, when God sends a Bible teacher, when God provides for clear, accurate, doctrinal teaching in a community. The benefit to that community, but also the accountability of that community when they uh, don't respond. Things to consider. Over to chapter 11, verse uh, 32. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Isn't that something? Jonah went to Nineveh, didn't want to. Didn't want to see him repent. They repented and he pouted about it. <laughs> Jesus is sent to his generation and they put him on the cross. So these Gentiles, these Assyrians, you know how slimy, how low the Assyrians were? They're the lowest of the low. The, the unbelieving Assyrians are at the bottom layer of, of Sheol. When Ezekiel was given his tour of the abyss and Ezekiel tours hell and who was on the very bottom the assyrians were on the very bottom but here's a generation of assyrians that responded to jonah's message and they're going to be in heaven comes up again in chapter 15 luke 15 verses 7 and 10 uses of repentance there were a lot of messages on repentance in in the uh, course of christ's ministry I tell you uh, that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Same thing in verse 10. In the same way I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know, it may be that God is calling us to dark days in our country where we can stand as testimonies to standards of righteousness I know there's a lot of insecurity out there. There's a lot of concern about the economy and the politics and the government and the world we're living in and all the rest of that. But as dark as it gets, let's just stay faithful to the truth. Chapter 16 and verse 30. Hmm. Lazarus dies. He's comforted in Abraham's bosom. The rich man dies and he's buried. And... Uh, of course, he's in agony in this flame without Christ, without eternal life. All you have to look forward to is the burning fires of hell. And got concerned about five brothers. They're all unbelievers. And he wants, he wants uh, to send somebody back with a message. Hmm. So the, I'm out of time. Let's just wrap up with this here. The... Um, Send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that they may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, the word of God lays out there the expectations for salvation. He says, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Is that a fact? How about that? Well, Jesus rose from the dead, right? Are you seeing waves and waves of uh, humanity responding to that resurrection? 
But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. I mean, the historical documentation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most historically documented fact of human history and doesn't impress a whole lot of people because of the Word of God. They're against the, the, the doctrine of revelation to begin with. All right, there's other passages there in Acts, but we'll let that go. Uh, it is important to note, though, that when you get into Acts 17 and Acts 26, you are fully into the church age, all right? So don't just think that, uh, you know, repentance is a message for the dispensation of Israel in the anticipation of their kingdom. That is true, but repentance is also a message for the dispensation of the church and the change of thinking that we must have with respect to God's revealed word. So, you know, as we're, we, there's one more issue we've got to deal with, which is point four, because Jesus actually brings up another disaster that had happened, the falling of a tower. So we'll have to put that off for next week. But the um, the uh, the real issue. Let's let's try to keep the real issue the real issue. Salvation, you know, whatever it is. I mean, are they doing bad things? All right. Well, what do you expect? They're sinners. They're unbelievers. They need the gospel, and that's what we have to proclaim. Father, thank you for this time together. I don't know where the time goes, Father. It just goes so fast. But I thank you for it. I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you for the blessings we have to study to show ourselves approved. Thank you for our visit this week from uh, uh, Jim Myers and Phyllis. And, and uh, we, we continue to lift them up as they travel around the country and prepare for their return back to Ukraine. So many, so many blessings. Uh, the visit today from Stephanie, all the things that you, you just remind us, Father, how faithful you are and the lives of believers in so many places, uh, not only here, but elsewhere across the state and around the world. It is a blessing. It is a delight. Father, thank you for allowing us to uh, minister the word of God in, uh, in the opportunities that are made available. Uh, if by your grace you give us additional opportunities, we want to redeem each one. But we give them, we give each one of them to you as a sweet-smelling savor with thanksgiving and praise that uh, on this occasion we can uh, be obedient to the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would take the Word of God, implant it within our souls, make it real to each one of us so that we are uh, molded and fashioned to uh, his image. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.